take a walk, ride, stroll, or just listen as you take hold and engage because you are now entering the Cerebral Podcast. Joke of the day. What word becomes less applicable the more you use it? Answer. Unprecedented. Thought of the day comes from singer-songwriter John Bon Jovi from his hit song, Do What You Can. Here's a clip. I know you're feeling kind of nervous. We're all a little bit confused. Nothing's the same, this ain't a game We gotta make it through When you can do what you do You do what you can This ain't my prayer, it's just a thought I'm wanting to send Round here we bend, but don't break Down here we all understand You can do what you do You do what you can Hello and welcome back to the Cerebral Podcast. This is episode 22. This week I want to talk about crisis management and how sometimes people with disabilities are more prepared than the average person because people with disabilities deal with routine challenges often and even breaks in routines. I have had to adapt to many physical and situational circumstances. Growing up, I was expected to keep up or be left behind. In school, in the 1980s, I had to deal with whatever reasonable accommodations were often decided for me. Reasonable accommodation wasn't even a real thing until The ADA was passed in 1990. In my junior year of high school, I had to work harder just to keep up with not only my friends, but also my coursework. In short, I had to figure out how to use my condition of cerebral palsy with my crutches and keep moving. One of the trickiest things I had to deal with was Crowds of people. I had to watch what I was doing and make sure I wasn't slipping or falling. But I also had to be aware of many people around me. Being in the minority as the only kid having permanent crutches in all my 12 years of Catholic school meant that I needed to keep up with everything and everyone, but I also needed to avoid getting hurt. I also didn't want to hurt other people. I needed to come up with my own existential ideas to survive in a very restrictive, fast-paced environment. Sometimes I didn't know if people tripped me or if I tripped other people and sometimes I was in the middle of tripping. 
or I was in the middle of walking, or talking, or falling. If you don't think that tripping or falling, or walking or talking, is a crisis, think about it. Think about another word like embarrassing or humiliating. Situations were sometimes too close to call. It was like that IBM commercial that played in between baseball games in the 1980s. Here's a clip. IBM presents You Make the Call. With a count of two strikes on a batter, a pitcher takes too long to throw the ball. The batter asks for time and steps out of the box, just as the pitcher appears to throw the third strike. Is the batter out? You make the call. A batter can ask for time any time he pleases, but only the umpire can grant his request. In this case, he clearly didn't. So if you said the batter was out, then you made the right call. The difference between talked and talking is you are in the middle of it. The difference between move and moving can also be defined as you are in the process of doing it. Moving means that you are in the process of making the move. Talking means you are in the process of talking. Falling means you are in the process of falling. When you are in the process of doing something, you are actively figuring it out. We are in the middle of a health crisis and a social crisis and an economic crisis. The coronavirus has made it easier to do telehealth, video chatting, and has also improved working from home because now for a majority of the population, circumstances caused a change. The world is different because of different threats and anxieties. For months, many people or cities were mandated to stay at home. We were told at the beginning of the coronavirus to only go out for exercise or basic necessities. Some people with disabilities, including myself, found the situation easier and more empathetic. This was due in part because people who were used to moving around at will or wanted to move around freely were restricted or limited to participate. Some people even got angry because their choices or freedoms were limited. I talked about this in the last episode. We are still in the middle of an existential crisis where we are questioning our beliefs, values, and our purposes. We are currently still masking ourselves and social distancing ourselves for health and safety reasons. I talked about existentialism in episode 9, the Shakespearean soliloquy. But I also wanted to talk about a couple of national crisis moments and 
situations. In the spring of 2001, I was planning to move out on my own into my own apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I had been living with my parents 30 minutes outside of New York City in Rockland County, New York. There were increasing tensions at home because my parents were planning for retirement and at the same time I was trying to establish my independence. We were on two different trajectories. I had a job in downtown Manhattan not too far away from the World Trade Center. I had been working for a design company as an associate web producer. The company, Addison, produced annual reports for companies like PepsiCo, Ryder, Franklin Templeton, and other Fortune 500 companies. The web team converted physical annual reports into website annual reports. As the summertime approached, I received word from the company that they were slowing down during those months and wouldn't need me until the fall when the busy season started up again. Over the next few months, I contacted family members in Brooklyn and started my apartment search. My dad and his family were born in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, which was a heavily Polish neighborhood. I talked to several real estate agents and told them about my disability and crutches and that I would be able to do a maximum of one flight of stairs with the apartment being on the first floor. I even indicated that I was looking preferably for a ground floor apartment. But many apartments in Brooklyn had at least some stairs. To my surprise, real estate agents on at least four occasions had apartments that ended up being on the second, third, and fourth floors. I then realized that the agents were treating me like a number and not really listening to my physical needs. In June, my cousins from Greenpoint bought a house next to theirs and started renovating it. They contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in renting the first floor. I agreed and started looking for a roommate. I contacted a co-worker at Addison and invited him to become my roommate. My cousins and I set the middle of August as the move-in date. My parents gave me $3,000 which was a startup fund I had been paying into with an average of $500 a month of rent living at home for six years. My parents 
were comfortable with the arrangement since my cousins were just next door and my uncle was just down the street on the next block. By moving out, I was able to use a relatively reasonable extended support system of relatives. Both my cousin and my uncle also had friends and neighbors they knew since they grew up on the same street all their lives. I wanted to pause and talk about some of the research into extended support systems. I was recently told by a friend and fellow alum at Virginia Len about the zone of proximal development. The concept of the zone of proximal development, sometimes abbreviated ZPD, is the difference between what a learner can do without help and what he or she can do with help. It is the concept developed by Soviet psychologist and social constructivist Lev Vykovsky. This scaffolding interpretation has led to instructional approaches that provide support from more experienced and knowledgeable people until the less competent person can internalize the skills and knowledge from the assisted performance and begin to perform individually. The ZPD has been interpreted as the distance between understood and active knowledge. Understood knowledge is acquired via formal instruction and corresponds to Vykovsky's formulation of scientific concepts. Active knowledge is gained by informal interactions of individuals with the world and relates to Vykovsky's notion of everyday or spontaneous concepts. Finally, ZPD has been defined as the distance between individual activity and societal activity. Now back to me moving in to my first apartment in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I had known my uncle and my cousins from frequent family visits, but adulting with them meant investing time in developing new relationships with people I thought I knew. But meals over the next few weeks became more about digesting and relating to these new personalities that I never saw because my parents had always previously been around during holidays and other gatherings. I was piercing new territory by conversing and learning about a new set of family facts and figures. I was leveling with peers that I had a familial connection to. From my cousins, I learned 
knew Polish words and ate a lot of Polish pierogies and kibasi. I shared meals and a lot of conversations. I also saved money on at least two or three meals a week. My family conversations felt more like peer conversations or just getting little pieces of advice on the neighborhood. Seeing neighbors who became familiar faces on the street gave me a bit more confidence and security. From my Uncle Henry, who lived a block away from me, I learned about his coin collection and how many of the water gallon jugs of coins he had. I also learned about his job at the local warehouse on Greenpoint Avenue. Leviton was an electrical manufacturer that produced electrical and lighting products. My uncle lost his job after 15 years with the company because the manufacturing moved to Mexico. This was following the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, in the 1990s. Because he only had a high school education, and by today's standards, would most likely be identified as having an intellectual disability, he later found work as a security guard before getting injured at work and going on workers' compensation. By the first week of September 2001, I was getting more and more orientated to the shops, like the Salvation Army, and I was also getting my bearings in the neighborhood. The neighborhood was definitely changing. It was changing from the predominantly Polish neighborhood my dad was familiar with and grew up in. But it still had a strong Polish presence in Greenpoint. On September 10th, I decided to start sharpening my HTML and JavaScript coding skills. The next morning, September 11th, I purposefully decided not to watch the news so that I could dig deeper into the HTML and JavaScript books. At 10 a.m., I got a knock on my front door. My uncle just said that the Twin Towers got hit with an airplane. He had just come from the vantage point of the Pulaski Bridge on the Guinness Boulevard where other people were watching it in horror after seeing smoke and fire come from the World Trade Center. I quickly invited him into my apartment and turned on the TV as news reports of the events were unfolding in the terrorist attack. As I was watching, I was still processing the fact that the landmark buildings had been hit. The reports blended together 
as the scenes were played over and over. Then it got surreal. People were jumping out of the windows to avoid getting burned alive by the fire. Watching the news, we tried to get more information and also figure out what was going on at the same time. I didn't personally know anybody at the World Trade Center, so I wasn't directly affected. We watched the Twin Towers as they collapsed into dust. And then more news reports came out about the attack on the Pentagon and United Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We were watching and living through history. And we didn't know if there were going to be more attacks coming or what was going to happen. I want to take 11 seconds as a moment of silence to remember all the lives lost on September 11th and since then due to health and related illnesses. I didn't know anybody who personally died in the attacks. Thank you. I called my parents, and within two minutes of the call, my dad invited me to come back to live at home. I thought about it for a few minutes, and I told him that if I moved back home, that it would be much harder when I tried to be independent a second time. I wanted to build an independent platform for myself. Because of the support system I was establishing in Brooklyn, cousins, aunts, and uncles, and I was figuring out the new normal just like everyone else. I appreciated the offer from my parents, but I asked for their understanding and support as I continued to venture out on my own way to independence. My roommate arrived home around 9 p.m. The office we had both worked at a few blocks away from the World Trade Center was quickly evacuated after the attacks and my roommate walked home like everyone else because transportation had been shut down in the area. Because all we could do was wait and see, and life had changed so quickly in the course of a few hours, we talked to family and friends to help with processing the events. As a result of sharing and processing, I routinely checked in with friends and neighbors. I checked in with them multiple times a day. As a result of the collective neighborhood experience, we offered to help each other out or just did things in small groups. Meanwhile, the nation and New York City as a whole was trying to 
process and comprehend what was happening and moving forward. One of the distinct stories I remember on September 11th was the story of Abe Zalmanowitz. He was a computer programmer who worked for Empire Blue Cross and Blue Shield on the 27th floor of Tower 1 of the World Trade Center in New York City. He died in the collapse of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. One of his best friends was a co-worker and fellow programmer, Ed B.A., who was a quadriplegic. With the elevators not working after the attack, B.A. had no way of getting out. Rather than going down the stairs to save himself, Zalmanowitz chose to stay with his friend and wait with him for a rescue team to carry B.A. down. In my estimation, Abe Zalmanowitz was part of the zone of proximal development for Ed B.A., According to the Louisville Courier, when Blue Cross Blue Shield moved offices in 1989 to the World Trade Center, Ed B.A.'s cubicle was directly across from Abraham Zamanowitz's cubicle. A charming storyteller, Abe found a kindred soul and his fellow computer programmer, Ed B.A. Their easy camaraderie featured endless jokes and banter that lightened the data-driven monotony of a workday of feeding computers. The friendship transcended the workplace. The two bachelors with Ed's aide, Irma, in tow, enjoyed dinners out two or three times a month at a Manhattan steakhouse or some other favorite eatery. If Ed picked the restaurant, he took great pains in making sure that it was a kosher menu, respecting Abe's Orthodox Jewish faith. If it was Abe's turn, he made sure the restaurant was wheelchair accessible According to a video posted on Cool Jew News YouTube channel, the Zamanowitz family donated artifacts to the September 11th Memorial Museum. Here's the clip. One of many striking personal artifacts came from Jack Zelmanowitz and his wife, Evelyn. It is an object that belonged to Jack's brother who was one of the heroes of 9-11. Abe Zelmanowitz worked in the North Tower, well below the impact zone. Yes, this is it, here we be. Abe had ample time to evacuate, but he refused to leave the tower without his co-worker and close friend, who was in a wheelchair and unable to escape. It's really a pleasure to meet you both, and I can see Very the nice. family resemblance. We came to know the Zalmanowitzes, Abe's brother and his sister-in-law, and just learned remarkable stories about this man's life. 
Mrs. Zelmanowitz called us and said, you know, she wanted to come in. She had some photographs she wanted to share, and she brought with her something to donate. He left for work that morning yeah. and said goodbye. Yeah, on his day, we approached each other and simultaneously, just the truth I give you, it's not a story. We, we uh, hugged each other. Ah. We never did that. That was that was that was the that was 9/11. He worked alongside Ed B A. Mm -hmm. Ed B A. Who was a quadriplegic, mm -hmm. but uh, as Ed, Abe said, he was a brilliant mind. Ed had an aide. Abe sent her down. He insisted that she go down. Yeah. And he said, "I'll stay here with Ed, and we're going to get help, and we'll we'll get down." In the aftermath of the attacks, eventually the story came out. You know, it just became deeply inspirational story to people about loyalty and courage and um, decency. We were notified by the property clerk's office that they had recovered Abe's ID. And all this time, since 2002, it's been in this envelope that we received it in. And it took us this long to make the decision that we did want to donate it to the museum because we felt it was, it was a connection to that day. And so we're here to present it to you. And this is the ID. And his face is visible. Well, this is, this is incredible. And, and, you know, we really would be privileged to have it. The collective experience in New York City and in Brooklyn left people with a sense of helplessness. Over the next couple of days, the helplessness led to people asking and trying to pitch in to help each other out with tasks, chores, or just wanting to talk to each other. People didn't want to be alone, so they either invited neighbors inside, or we talked for hours on the sidewalk. I made sure to check in with my cousins next door and my uncle down the street at least once a day. Within a few days, I received the information from my roommate who worked for the same company that the freelance contracts were postponed. There was not much for us to do as the city and the country was figuring out the new normal. Flights had been grounded to prevent another possibility of an attack. I started looking for another job in the New York Times newspaper and other local papers. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, I bonded more and more with my cousins and my uncle since they were close by. We were sharing an unbelievable experience that con continued to evolve day by day. The news regularly reported from Ground Zero about the recovery area as New York City started to move forward. An anthem soon came out in the form of a song. 
Superman, It's Not Easy, also titled Superman, was a song written and performed by the band Five for Fighting. It was released in April 2001 as the second single from the second studio album, America's Town. Following the September 11th attacks, the song was used to honor the victims, the survivors, the police, and the firefighters involved with the attacks. Here's a clip. is good but it didn't resonate with me the most the line that resonated with me the most was I'm just out to find a better part of me more specifically I was just out to find a better part of me to be more independent at the same time my uncle was revealing some details about his chronic health conditions. He was telling me stories about how much he struggled growing up, how he often felt misunderstood. I identified with that because I often felt confused and misunderstood growing up. I felt incredibly close to my uncle because of the man-to-man disclosures we had between us. I had to hide my disability even though even though people clearly saw I used crutches. My uncle also told me that he struggled with circulation issues after his workers' compensation accident he had a few years earlier. We also shared Good things like his love of James Bond movies and my love of baseball growing up. Two of my uncle's hobbies were collecting records and talking about the 1950s and 60s music. Another another longtime hobby he had was coin collecting. He showed me dozens of coin books he kept. He also showed me the many books of pennies he collected over the years. At that time, he had some more medical problems and a couple more visits to the hospital. The the doctors gave him a shunt. 
he was successfully recovering a couple of days in the hospital before he was sent home. My dad was excited because that meant that my uncle could celebrate his birthday at home. My dad had planned an impromptu surprise party since my uncle's birthday came on a Sunday later in October. I called and talked to my uncle briefly on the previous Saturday afternoon because of the impending surprise the next day. Early on Sunday morning, around 8.30, I heard a knock at the, at the door. I opened the door to find my dad standing there. I was excited to see him because he had arrived earlier than I expected, by at least a few hours. I invited him in. He asked me to sit down. I sat down, still holding my crutches. He struggled to talk and started breaking down as he said that my uncle passed away overnight. I stood up and hugged him. I waited for him to calm down and he explained more of the stroke that my uncle had experienced. Over the next few days, the family came together and talked about funeral arrangements. In one of the discussions, family members were talking about eulogizing my uncle. They wanted to talk about him, but they were concerned and confused about the best way to do it. I thought about the rite of passage experience of doing the eulogy myself. I thought about the coin and penny collections and how individually each penny didn't have much value. But by collecting and saving, time increased and compounded the value of the pennies. Similarly, like pennies, individual moments or experiences may not have much value at the time, but if the experiences can be added together or grouped cumulatively, they can add more value over the course of time. What negative or difficult experience can you start collecting value or experience from? I healed in many ways because of the strong relative support I got from family and friends. One of the symbolic ways I started healing after my Uncle Henry passed away was I took some pennies from my Uncle Henry's collection and taped the letter H for Henry to the wall next to my bed. I did this so that he could continually watch over me for the next few years. In the next episode, I will talk about changes in help and how small opportunities left me sleeping on my aunt's couch. In what ways or experiences can you 
or your family build a zone of proximal development support system. Thank you for listening to this extended September 11th episode. Thank you for allowing me to be a voice inside your head. Please share this podcast with someone you know. Were there one or two specific things that you learned or liked? Would you mind joining and sharing it on the Cerebral Podcast Facebook group? You can listen to the show on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you to the listeners who support the show on the Cerebral Podcast Facebook group. I invite you to join the group. You can also email the show at thecerebralpodcast at gmail.com or send questions, comments, or ideas for the show. And remember, it takes effort to be vulnerable, be accountable, and be respectful in the way you treat others and yourself. You can be the biggest variable in your life when you take ownership. Now, take hold, engage in your world. You are now leaving the Cerebral Podcast. Oh,